An Air India Express 737 is flying from Dubai to Mangalore when something goes very wrong on landing. What caused this flight to catapult off the end of the runway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Quick disclaimer. Yeah. We decided to record on our normal night, which is Sunday. However, today is the Super Bowl. So any noise you hear may or may not be our neighbors and or Leo. Right. There's noises happening because Super Bowl is still currently going on. It is the fourth quarter currently. It'll finish sometime during our first half. Hopefully. So who knows? go with no overtime. Right. So who knows? Anyways, you already know what happened by now. We have no idea. Nor do any of us at this table really quite honestly care. Nope. So, that's the thing. We have quite a few patrons to thank. Oh, sweet Jesus. Yeah, we up. do. I think we got another one today. We did. Paige, you're going to have to come back over. <laughs> some of them we don't need to fill, though, because some of them are returns. One yeah. of them is. Yes. I don't have listed the return one. Craig is the return one. Thank you to our new patrons. Aaron, Craig, Alyssa, Beth. I think that's everyone. Yes. It's everybody on the news on the new list. Well, so part of the problem that Patreon does occasionally is it will decline your card. Mm-hmm. It will make you re-sign up and it makes you look like a new patron, even though you're not a new patron. That's fair. So, so some of you may not be new new, but you look new. So hello. Thank hello. you. So also hello anyway. Also check out the newsletter, we are going to be giving answers at the end of this episode. For the trivia questions. And then make sure you check out the merch page. We're sorry about Milo barking in the background. There's people outside. <laughs> yeah, driving him nuts. So I think unless there's anything else for like housekeeping stuff. Not a lot. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today. We are covering Air India Express Flight 812. Thank you to Kate for recommending this episode. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate. And we are prefacing this with a Miranda raid warning. Yes, this one comes with a nice... I already know I'm going to get mad at this because Christy literally just said like one word and I was like... Yeah, (laughs) it's it's not a it's not one you want to hear. No. So that's fun. Yep. So this is going to come with a healthy amount of Miranda rage. The phrase it gets worse gets mentioned a couple times. Yeah, a couple. So this accident occurred on May 22nd of 2010. Did you remember this one? Do you remember it happening? Honestly, so we'll talk about this later. No, and there's a reason why. Okay. (laughs) We'll talk about this a lot later on. Anyways, this is a Boeing 737-800 with the tail number Victor Tango-Alpha X-Ray Victor. This was a flight from Dubai to Mangalore or Mangaluru, depending on... Mangaluru. (laughs) What? Uh Uh-huh. I'm sorry. That's just two very different things. That's its current name is Mangaluru. That's what it is. But it also in the report is Mangalore. Mangalore. Yep. India. Like Bangalore. But when you go find this place on a map, it is Mangaluru. Okay. Thanks, so, world. Yep. That's thing. Messing me up real bad. Yep. We will refer to it as Mangalore because that's how they refer to it in the report. It's on the header of every page. Yep. The captain for this flight was Zlatko Glushika. Something like that. This this name, we'll talk about it in just a second, why that was really hard to pronounce. He's 55 years old. He had 10,215 hours at the time. He had 2,844 of those on the 737. He is not Indian. No, he was a that. British and Serbian national. 
Miranda's making a face. His name is Serbian. I have no idea okay. how to pronounce it. Okay. <laughs> so I probably pronounced all of that very wrong. Sorry. Henceforth known as the captain. Yes, the captain. First officer was Harbinder Singh Aluwalia. That's Indian. Yep. He was 40 years old at the time. He had 3,620 hours total, of which 3,319 were on the 737. So he has been on the 737. The whole time. Pretty much the whole time. All but 300 hours. Damn. Yeah. The scheduled departure time from Dubai was at 1.15 a.m. local time. This is a weirdly common thing in the Middle East. In the middle of the night, they just have like a horde of departures. International, usually going far away. Okay. But this is just like a thing. That just doesn't happen in most of the rest of the world where in like, the middle of the night, like There's maybe some, reason for that. some little red eyes here and there. Yes, there is a reason for that. Little red eyes here and there. But no, like this is just a th- like their airports come alive between 1 and 3 a.m. They're so busy, usually with connecting passengers. So anyways. There's a reason that doesn't happen. And yes. that's called foreshadowing. Yes, that is called foreshadowing. It had a scheduled arrival time in Mangalore of 6.30 a.m. local time. The flight crew and four cabin crew operated the flight from Mangalore to Dubai where a quick turn, quote-unquote, was performed. The aircraft had arrived early, and normally the scheduled time to turn this airplane is very short, like 30 minutes, to get everybody off, everybody on, fuel, bags, and go, which is insane. They don't do that. They had plenty of time, actually, because the airplane arrived into Dubai plenty early on the previous flight. They had an hour and 22 minutes to kill in Dubai. 160 passengers, including four infants, Boarded the flight. Pretty full airplane. Not Probably not completely full, but pretty full. The flight departed the gate at 1.06 a.m., nine minutes early. They were ahead of schedule. The departure, climb, and cruise were uneventful from Dubai. The flight made initial contact with the Mangalore area controller at 5.32 a.m. and 48 seconds. Now, this is all now local time in India, which is a half an hour off of the rest of the world. <sighs> Of course it is. One of those places. So take that with a grain of salt. There's a TikTok series on that. Yep, there is. Wonderfully entertaining. Fantastic. Time zones are horrible (laughs) in this world. The radar was not functional in the area, so the controller only had radio communication and had to basically paint a picture in his mind of where anything was. Now, mind you, it's very early in the morning, basically middle of the night. Not a lot going on. Not to say it's empty, but not a lot going on. The flight reported being at position India Gulf Alpha Mike Alpha, or Igama, at 5.33 a.m. and 20 seconds. Five minutes later, the first officer asked for the type of approach to Mangalore from the air traffic controller, and the air traffic controller responded to expect the ILS DME ARC approach to runway 24. We are not discussing this now. We are I will not get to it. discussing this now. Okay. It is an ILS. It does involve a DME. We'll talk about this later on. This is not a common type of approach, and there's no. a reason why, but we'll talk about it later. Anyways, gave them that information. At 130 miles from the airport, the flight crew requested a descent clearance. The air traffic controller subsequently denied that request due to aircraft separation procedures. This was actually part of their standard procedures when radar was not in use. So because the radar was not operational at the time, the controllers are forced to use this other procedure for spacing. So he would not allow them to descend 130 miles from the airport. 
Instead, at 5.46 a.m. and 54 seconds, the aircraft reported being 80 DME, 80 miles, on the radial 287, as had been instructed by the Mangalore area controller, at which time the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 7,000 feet, and the flight crew acknowledged. So, basically he told them, no, you can't descend now, but when you get to 80 DME from, on X radial from the airport... Call me. Call me. Okay. Call me back. We'll talk then. They commenced their descent at 5.47 a.m. and 34 seconds. At 50 miles from the airport and descending through flight level 295 or 29,500 feet, the pilot did an approach briefing. At 25 nautical miles from the airport, as they were descending through flight level 184 or 18,400 feet, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to 2,900 feet. So, much lower. They still weren't, obviously, even close to their initial descent. The first officer then requested that they proceed direct to radio 338 and join the 10 DME arc. Again, we'll talk about this later on. So he's asking basically for a more direct route. At 5.52 a.m. and 43 seconds, the Mangalore area controller instructed the flight to contact the airport tower, and the flight crew acknowledged and switched frequencies. Upon initial contact with the tower controller, the air traffic controller asked the aircraft to report being established on the 10 DME arc for the ILS runway 24, and the flight crew acknowledged. A short time later, the flight crew reported being established on the DME arc, the air traffic controller then requested that the flight crew report when they are established on the ILS. As the aircraft descended through 8,500 feet, the spoilers were deployed in the flight detent, which is where literally where you would put it while you're in flight to slow it down. This was to help with speed and the descent rate. The captain also called for the gear to be lowered at that time. A short time later, the captain requested flaps 40 degrees. have to assume they've been going incremental at this point. But 40 is max. So that was basically stating that's when they went max flap. They then subsequently completed the landing checklist. 6.03 a.m. and 35 seconds. The aircraft was 2.5 DME, two and a half miles from the airport, when the radio altimeter alerted that they were at 2,500 feet above the runway. This is normal on every aircraft, everywhere, like all, all airliners. Nothing of concern. Nope, into every airport. It just states 2,500 to tell them, they're 2,500 feet above field elevation. The captain disconnected the autopilot at that time and took over manual control of the aircraft. Neither pilot reported being established on the ILS approach to the air traffic controller, as they had been instructed. So at this point, they are well on the ILS. They're very close to the airport. And they have never said to the air traffic controller, we're on the ILS, like they had been asked to do. So the air traffic controller inquired about if they were established on the ILS, at which time the first officer told him, affirmative. They are. Thanks. Thanks, great. They were just about to the runway at that point in time. <laughs> Which is great, because at that time, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to land and indicated that the winds were calm. Moments later, the aircraft crossed the threshold and touched down on the runway. The captain activated the thrust reversers and the brakes. They had auto brakes, but he pushed on the brakes, eventually. Six seconds after touchdown, the captain called for a go-around. Did you catch that? Called for a go-around. Six seconds after touchdown, with the thrust reversers already active. It was too late. The aircraft overshot the end of the runway, which then has a downslope toward the boundary fence. The aircraft traveled down the slope, striking the localizer antenna structure, which was concrete, by the way, with the right wing. The aircraft then went through the boundary fence and fell into a gorge. Launched not, into a gorge. Right, not a small one. It launched itself into a very large ravine. The crew never made an emergency call over the radio, and the air traffic controller could not see the aircraft, actually, from the tower, but had made a call to instruct the flight to taxi back down the runway as a standard after landing, and he had done so at the exact moment they struck the gorge. <laughs> not knowing that was what was happening. 
The aircraft came to rest in the gorge 500 meters, so half a kilometer past the boundary fence in a wooded area. The aircraft immediately broke apart into many pieces, and an explosion and post-crash fire ensued. This was very violent, way more violent than that sounds, even. The aircraft emergency services were alerted and scrambled to find the aircraft, which was difficult because of its location, which was very downhill from the airport. We'll talk about that later on. They still managed to arrive fairly quickly, but what they found when they arrived was complete devastation. In all, 152 passengers and all six crew perished in the accident. Eight passengers survived, seven of whom were seriously injured, but one only had minor bruising. That's incredible. Lucky person. Holy crap. Okay, so a lot of stuff goes in my brain. And I'm going to be honest, I was only half paying attention. Okay. It's okay because I left a lot of stuff out. So they landed. Uh Uh-huh. Full landed. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. With thrust reversers on. Uh Uh-huh. Called for a go-around. Uh-huh. Then overran the end of the runway. Yep. Uh-huh. Did I miss something there? Like There's a lot I have left out. Okay. Like, There's a lot I have left out for a where reason. Where flaps out, where spoilers out. Yes and yes. Were all they of those breaking things. all the way? Yes. yes. All of those Did things. Did they touch down at the right portion of the runway? Anyway. <laughs> We're going to talk about that soon. That's a no. Okay. <laughs> I found it. I found it. You found one piece. You're going to be so mad when we get there. <laughs> Sounds great. That's the end of that. That's the end of the mad. But first. (laughs) This investigation was performed by a court of inquiry established by the government of India to investigate the crash, though they weren't appointed until June 3rd. And yeah, which is just crazy. 12 days after the crash. Right. And we'll talk about this later on, but you might note that this happened in 2010 and this was still a court of inquiry. After this crash, they established an investigation body. Ding, 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 ding. You found one of the recommendations. Literally, pretty much, I, I should say every country should have a board of, in, like, something, like, investigative authority. Yep. Yes. But I also realized, like, small countries, that's a little bit weird to do. Especially but if they don't have an Any airline. major countries, mm-hmm. like India. You would think, at You this would point. think would have an mm-hmm. actual, like, investigative. They do now. Which is good, because they've had a lot of crashes in the last several years. Anyway, (laughs) we'll talk about it later. on. They had assistance from the Directorate General of Civil Aviation or the DGCA, which is the Aviation Regulation Authority in India, as well as the NTSB. NTSB. Because it was a 737. Yep. Which means Boeing also helped. And so did the FAA. The CVR was recovered the day after the crash with significant heat and fire damage to the exterior, as in it was truly a black box. It was completely charred. It was charred to there's, the crisp. There's soot. Yes. I showed Miranda a picture. I'm like, look, it's a black box. And she's like, did they paint it black? I'm like, no. 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 No, it's, it's just burned. <laughs> and then the FDR was recovered two days later in two pieces. It cracked in half? Uh-huh. Entirely. They must have hit really hard then. Yeah. Both... Black boxes were initially sent to the DGCA for analysis, but they were too damaged and had to be sent for reconstruction by the NTSB in Washington, D.C. Yep. Once fixed, they were sent back to the DGCA for analysis, which they did have the tools to do. What are some of the things we discuss normally for a runway overrun, like we just talked about a couple episodes ago? Let's talk about the runway. Mangalore Airfield has what is known as a tabletop runway, thereby classifying it as a critical airfield, requiring a special clearance for both flight crew to operate at Mangalore. Air India Express standard operating procedure says that only the pilot in command is allowed to take off and land at critical airfields. 
So that's of note. It's a really strange thing. I mean, it's not entirely abnormal, depending on the parts of the world. And there are tabletop airports all over the place. There's actually quite a few here in the U.S. There's quite a few here in Colorado. But can you define a tabletop? It's an airport set above the surrounding terrain. So tell your ride. It's quite literally. Yes, it's quite literally uh, exactly as it sounds. It's a tabletop. Aspen. Yes. Aspen, Telluride are great examples of this. One of the most prominent ones in the United States is Sedona. It is a full-on tabletop, as is Catalina Islands Airport. It's known as the airport in the sky because it's... Just, elevated. Yeah, elevated. And it's pretty much got... All of these airports have one thing in common, and that is a cliff on either side of the runway. So, so there's no margin for error for a runway overrun. Nope. <clears throat> The runway was 8,033 feet, more than adequate for aircraft such as the 737 family or the baby bus family, so runway length was not a factor. The runway was dry and not contaminated at the time of touchdown, though a light drizzle did start after the aircraft touched down and uh, crashed. Yep. For that matter, investigators deemed that no weather conditions contributed to the accident. Nope. The bomb disposal and detection squad... Hey, it. you know what? You never know. You never know, right? They examined the wreckage and found no evidence of an explosion, so sabotage was ruled out. For some reason, they had a whole section on this in the recommendations that I am not going over. But they had a whole thing about explosives people and explosive detection. Explo- and explosive-, explosive people? Yeah, well, people, people that involved. that handle explosives. People involved with investigating and determining explosive devices. And so, oh, so many So things. not spontaneous combustion people? No. Okay. <laughs> that sounds way more fun, though. It's not. (laughs) I never want to spontaneously combust. Anyway, there was no evidence from any witnesses or the two black boxes that there was a fire in the air, and any fire that did occur occurred after impact. There was no evidence of a bird strike, in case you were wondering. So what happened? This is one of those reports where investigators recount the story using the FDR and CBR, and it becomes fairly evident what transpired. Unfortunately. So here we go. Take off and climb were uneventful. Great. Great. There were two whole sections, one sentence each, that said that. Great. Once the flight reached cruising altitude, there was no intra-cockpit communication, though the first officer occasionally spoke to the cabin crew when they asked if they needed food or beverages. What was the captain doing? Quote, Captain's heavy breathing and snoring was recorded intermittently on the captain's microphone channel of the CBR while the first officer made all of the required radio transmission calls. The captain's breathing pattern indicated he was sleeping and it was recorded from the 11th minute of available 2 hours and 5 minutes of the recording. This was recorded intermittently until 21 minutes before the accident, end quote. So he was asleep. He was just full sleeping. It was a full on asleep for a good long time. Um, okay. Not only is that very concerning. Yes. But why did the first officer just let him sleep? Yes. Who's the one flying? Supposed to be flying? <laughs> right. <laughs> the captain. Now to be fair, at this and point, he's the, the auto- one who's asleep. Now to be fair, the the autopilot's got it right now, and the first officer is the pilot monitoring. So he is monitoring. But, but- <laughs> that's not an excuse, Nick. You're not that- supposed to be sleeping on the job. Look, I tried to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, but you- no, you're right. <laughs> So there's that. There is actually, there's. we'll talk about this later on, but there is actually a whole controlled way you can get rest in long flights, but... This ain't that long of a flight. It's a little long, but not that long. According to the NTSB, this was the first time that snoring had ever been recorded on a CBR. So great. Because you're not supposed to be sleeping while you're flying? Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine why they never have heard it before. At least not while you're in the captain's chair. Yeah. Also, I feel like you should never be sleeping deep enough to snore. We'll get to that. 
I agree. This meant that during cruise, there was no interaction regarding position reporting or weather monitoring. Solid. When the Mangalore area controller gave them instructions, the first officer took the direction and conveyed it to the captain later when he woke up. This indicated a total breakdown of proper crew coordination and... Crew resource management! <sighs> Woo! At 5.41, the first officer briefed the captain on the weather and expected approach to Mangalore. And this was the first time that they had really communicated. Great. Which is, again, very concerning. Yes. But the captain did not effectively communicate back. Oh, probably because he just got up? Yeah, probably. This approach briefing was deemed incomplete and did not conform to standard operating procedure. Correct. I wonder why. Couldn't tell you. Now for the descent. About 130 miles out, they requested descent clearance, but were denied due to traffic and all that stuff that Nick talked about earlier. They were instead told to report when they were 80 miles out, which they did, and they were then cleared to 7,000 feet, which they began when they were 77 miles out. As they passed through flight level 295, or 29,500 feet, they were 50 miles out and the captain deployed the speed brakes to speed up their descent. About a minute later, the crew performed the descent preparation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. They're already dis- what? Uh-huh. They are supposed to perform descent preparation when they're 150 miles out. You're correct. So, like, right around the time that they were asking for descent clearance? Uh, 20 miles before that, actually. Yeah. And the descent preparation is to be completed before any descent below cruising altitude because it contains weather review, approach briefing, and delegation of duties between the two flight crew. The preparation is designed to enhance situational awareness through the descent approach and landing, and they didn't do it until they were like a third of the distance that they should have been. On top of the fact that you also need to do landing checklists and things like Uh that too. Yep. It gets worse. Uh, Yes, it does. uh, Of course it does. Air India Express standard operating procedure, along with pretty much every airline in existence, mandates the use of headsets during the time between pre-flight checklist to the top of the climb, then again from the top of the descent to the completion of the secure checklist after landing. The CVR revealed that the captain only started using his hot mic 13 minutes before the crash. So great. Okay. So, a large part of the descent preparation discusses the approach procedure, approach information, minima, missed approach procedure, alternatives, including landing and stopping, distance planning, all that jazz. Let's take a second and discuss this type of approach because it is unlike anything we have ever talked about before. I'm sending Miranda a picture. It is quite odd. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not unique, but it's not common and again, there is a good reason why. Yeah, you showed me this yesterday. Yeah, well, now we're going to actually discuss it. It looks really stupid. We're going to dive into how this works. So it's this, not really stupid, per se. If it gets you I to don't the, know why it's used, so you're going to have to explain that. Let's I'll, discuss yeah. what it is. This approach is called a DME ARC approach for ILS. In this case, ILS 2.4. Please look at the picture on our website for reference. Essentially, there is an arc at a prescribed distance from the airport VOR that you can join at several different points along the radials. And you follow that arc around the airport until you intercept the ILS. Then you follow that to the runway. Correct. This particular DME arc was 10 miles out from the airport VOR, and the approach chart detailed that the arc could be joined on the 338 radial, the 357 radial, or the 032, the 087, or the 153. And the reality is right, because it's a radial, so it's... 360 degrees, 10 miles away from the VOR, which is at the airport in this case. The reality is because it's a radial, you can join it in reality anywhere. Not technically. But the reason it's charted to join it in certain places is usually because of terrain and also because of other obstacles or city or whatever reason. It's ways to standardize getting traffic 
onto the there, radial. There are prescribed radials that are safest to join the arc. And you start right. turning to join the arc at 12 DME, so 12 miles out. Right, so that you're actually on it at 10. When the flight was 25 miles out, they were cleared to 2,900 feet and told to change to AATC Tower, at which time the first officer requested to join the 338 radial as they were currently on the 287, which does not have an established procedure to join the DME arc, and area control agreed to this request. Mm-hmm since that was the closest radial. So why do they use this? So the whole real explanation for this is if they don't chart in waypoints, first of all, that are set ways, and they don't have, for example, a a normal standard instrument arrival or a star, then usually this is the best way to enter an approach in the case where a VOR is directly at the airport, I should say. Because what this does is it standardizes and it ensures that you will always come around to the ILS in a safe manner, right? It's a very controlled way to do it, but it's very outdated. Because you have to be in a turn through that arc the whole time, and that is not a common thing to do. This only works at airports where the terrain is not inhibitive, where there aren't noise abatements in place, and where traffic isn't coming in from all directions all the time. You'll actually note on the approach chart, it has a topographic color chart. And you can see that if you were to come straight in on the ILS, you're actually passing over pretty high terrain. Which yeah. is kind of the whole idea. So they want you to enter in on the radio, go around the arc, and then enter the ILS. So And you're approaching the glide slope from underneath. It's a very roundabout way of doing what we do instead with waypoints these days, which could just pretty much take you direct and then you only have to make basically box turns, so 90-degree turns or 45-degree turns to get into the approach, which is a much more accurate thing we can do with GPS. Using VOR technology is fine, but so much more work in reality than allowing a GPS to follow waypoints. So at 5.55, the aircraft was advised by Air Traffic Control Tower to join the VOR 10 DME arc, and more than two minutes later, the first officer confirmed having done so, and Air Traffic Control advised them to call when established on the ILS. For those two minutes, plus a little more, the only sounds being made by the captain were exhaling, yawning, and throat clearing. The first officer, when not communicating with ATC, was yawning and whistling. Good times. Passing through flight level 095, the first officer set the altimeter pressure and the captain ordered the landing gear to be lowered. Why? The captain had realized that he was flying too high and already had the speed brakes deployed, so he lowered the landing gear to obtain a higher rate of descent. He was trying to add more drag to their descent so that he could slow down and descend faster, and it didn't work. Not enough, anyway. Now for the process of capturing the ILS. Prior to doing so, the flap selection is to be made per the flap extension schedule, and it is to be monitored by the first officer. Standard operating procedure also states that the captain should initiate the completion of ILS prep prior to the interception with flaps 5. Upon the first positive inward motion of the localizer pointer on the display... The first officer should have called out, localizer alive. He didn't do that. Nope, didn't happen. The next step is to capture the signal, which is to be done, as I said, at flaps 5. During the capture mode, the aircraft instead crossed the localizer, made an S-turn, and recaptured the extended center line of the localizer. Why? They're on flaps 1, not Yay. flaps 5. So great. And they were flying faster than the schedule said to. The first officer realized this and called out, VOR loc captured in a sing-song voice. I didn't really do a sing-song voice, but he sing-sang it. So great. Everything's going great right now. At 6.01 and 9.7 miles out, the captain requested flaps 10. 
while at an altitude of 5,930 feet and a speed of 202 knots. Though it was not specified, this aircraft has a limit for flaps 10 and 202 knots is higher than that. So the first officer asked, 10? At which point the captain realized he was right and slowed down. At 7.6 DME, or 7.6 miles out, they were fully established on the localizer and passed through 5,150 feet with a descent rate of 1,641 feet per minute. The captain then coughed for a prolonged amount of time. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> that seems great. Before sighing with relief and then ordered flaps 15 while passing through 4,630 feet at 6.7 DME. At 6.02 and 3,465 feet, 4.3 DME and a speed of 167 knots, flaps 25 was selected and the speed brakes were retracted. A minute later, flaps 40 were selected and the speed brakes were redeployed before being retracted again a minute later. Why is it so noteworthy that I mention all of these things? Quote, Air Indy Express Standard Operating Procedure states that the use of speed brakes with the flaps extended should be avoided as far as possible. With flaps 15 or greater, the speed brakes should be retracted. End quote. So they didn't do that. Nope. Flat out ignored that. Well, they're clearly so coherent. Yep. And so, like, able to follow directions. There's so many things happening here that are just so, hmm, lackadaisical? Yeah. Is the best way I could put it? During that speed break flap fiasco, other things were happening, as you might imagine. At 6.03, 3 DME, rate of descent of 1,043 feet per minute, speed 159 knots, and altitude of 2,815 feet, the captain requested flaps 40, and then started the landing checklist. And this checklist was a challenge and response checklist, and was very clear and without hesitation. Quote, it was at this time that the flight crew had shown correct CRM and alertness, end quote. When they're about to land. <laughs> yeah. Soon after finishing the checklist, the first officer said, it is too high, with 2.2 miles to go. 2,570 feet of altitude and a rate of descent of 1,588 feet per minute. This is all the stuff that I left out that was very key. They had all of this in the story. They actually had every bit of this in the story, like everything that went wrong. And I left it all out. After asking you, I was like, what am I leaving out? And I was pretty much everything. <laughs> Seven seconds later, he said, runway straight down. Once again, trying to alert the captain of their high approach. The captain finally figured that out. So great. And said, oh my God. The flight data recorder revealed that though they had engaged a glide slope, they had captured a false one due to their steep approach. Wait, you can have one? You can have a false glide slope? Yes. We've, ta we've talked about it before. A little bit. But this, we're going to go in depth on this. Uh, sort of. Sort of. The glide slope signal is emitted from an antenna, but that signal also happens to bounce off the ground, albeit at a lower signal strength. But this creates false glide slopes at the odd multiples of the true glide slope angle. So if the glide slope is normally 3 degrees, there will be a false glide slope at 9 degrees and at 15 degrees. If you follow published approach procedures, <clears throat> you won't ever encounter the false glide slopes because you would approach the true glide slope from underneath. Guess what they didn't do? And there are not false glide slopes under the true glide slope. But of course, you'd have to follow procedures <clears throat> to, to, to know that. <clears throat> At 6.03 and 43 seconds, 1.9 miles out and 2,300 feet of altitude, the captain disengaged the autopilot. And 10 seconds later, the first officer suggested go around. They should have gone around way before then. When the first officer said they were too high, that would have triggered to be like, hmm... Three seconds later, the captain realized they were on the wrong glide path, at which point I yell, maybe you should go the f around. Like, not only did the first officer tell you, hey, we're too high, like two minutes ago, but also now you're realizing you're too high and you're not on the right glide slope, go around. Well, guess what he decided to do instead? Land! Well, guess how he decided to do that? 
I'm sure that's sure your next don't part. tell me. Yes. He dove? Yeah. <laughs> I knew he was going to do that. Yeah. That little it and it gets in. worse. And it, it gets worse. It gets so much worse. During the whole approach, I've been saying airspeed and sync rate for the most part. You might have caught that. I was kind of trying to be obnoxious about it. Mm-hmm. But the first officer wasn't doing any of that like he was supposed to as pilot monitoring. Mm-hmm. Something that, you know, may have told them about their excessive airspeed and uh, sync rate. Yep. But don't worry, the EGPWS started calling it out for them. Sync rate. Sync rate. Yep. And then demanded that they pull up. Yep. As you might imagine, this approach was not conducted in compliance with the airline's guidelines for a stabilized approach. Mm-mm. Nah, I couldn't have known that by the AGBWS going off. No, and Air India good. Express standard operating procedure mandates a go-around once any deviation from a stabilized approach occurs. But they kept going. And the first officer did. continued to not make any altitude, speed, or sync rate callouts. It gets worse. It does get worse. How? What? It just gets worse. Crossing the threshold, they were 200 feet above the ground and at 164 knots instead of the normal 50 feet and 144 knots. Yep. Fun fact, this aircraft had what is called a flap load relief system that retracts the flaps if the speed is too high and then will push them back out when the speed is more appropriate. Yes, it does. So although they were set for flaps 40, the system had actually retracted the flaps to 30 until they reached 158 knots. Right. That happened while they were flaring. Yep. This is pretty much standard on the 737 and the A320 series. And that you can see why that might be a problem when they flare, they go below, and it yeah. suddenly decides to send more flaps out. That adds They more start lift. floating. Right. So they had a prolonged float and touched down late. Just how late did they touch down? 4,500 feet down the runway. You're correct. How much did that leave? Hold on, because that wasn't even the true touchdown. They touched down one landing gear at 4,500 feet, bounced, and then actually touched down 5,200 feet down the 8,033-foot runway. Right. So what did that leave them with? Less than 3,000 feet. Right. But they still had time to go around, right? You can always go around, unless you deploy thrust reversers. (laughs) Hey, guess what? Which the captain had done. Which, okay, listen, Linda, I, they should have gone around when they were too high uh-huh. before, right? Uh-huh. Like when the first officer said, hey, we're too high. Okay, well, let's go around and like fix this BS. But wait, right? this is actually solvable right here, right now, where they are on the ground, thrust reversers deployed. Let's talk about braking. Yeah. Although the runway length was adequate, most pilots prefer using an auto brake setting of three or max, but the accident flight only set it to two. Which this, is not enough. This setting creates a more gradual application of brakes, but the crew did the right thing and manually increased the brake pressure. Boeing testified at the public hearing that if the captain had deployed thrust reversers and applied maximum manual braking upon touching down, they would have stopped before the end of the runway. And see, this is one of those bold claims again that's like, okay, but... Investigators thought it was a little bold, too. So yeah. they did their own calculation and found out that, yeah, sure, that was kind of possible, but more likely they would have stopped in the overshoot area, which mm-hmm. they had. Yep. And still would have avoided the accident. Yep. But it gets worse. Yes, it does. After breaking, the captain stowed the thrust reversers. Why? Because he wanted to go. No, 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 no. You, like, up the go around when you deployed the thrust reversers. Right. At that point, try to stop. There's no point in trying to take back off. And he didn't. 
per Boeing and the airline's SOP, and you're everyone. correct. And everyone. And everyone. You're correct. They're not supposed to go around after the thrust reversers because are deployed. Because it will take way too long for you to unstow the reversers and get them going again enough to, in, in, in time to even lift off off the runway. Well, yes. he didn't care, so he stowed the thrust reversers, pushed the engines to full throttle with the intention of going around. Instead, that That just propelled them off the end of the runway. That catapulted through them. That catapulted them through the concrete antenna structure and into the gorge. What things may have led to the captain making uh, awful, terrible, poor decisions? I think it's fairly obvious to start with his obvious sleepiness, aka fatigue. 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 Welcome back to the Fatigue Podcast. The CBR recorded a total duration of one hour and twenty-eight minutes of breathing and snoring, suggestive of deep sleep. There are two potential reasons for this. Actually, I wrote three. I don't know why I said two. Okay, well. Good times. I'm sure one of them is the rhythm of circadian low, correct? That wasn't just... Can you shut <laughs> up? <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because it's not just in the report like once. That was in the story three times. So point one, this flight was operating between 2.45 a.m. and 6.05 a.m. local time. Why is that significant, Miranda? It's the window of the, circadian low. You, the circadian that, low? For the pilots who were based out of Mangalore. So the window of circadian low is between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. Studies have shown that it is difficult to maintain arousal and alertness during the window of circadian low, and it has a steep effect on our ability to perform complex tasks such as, I don't know, landing an aircraft. Seems like that's an important thing to do. Point two. Because the captain exhibited being in a deep sleep before being awoken, he likely experienced sleep inertia, which occurs when awoken from stage three or four sleep. Sleep inertia results in impairment of alertness and psychomotor ability and lasts usually for about 30 minutes. The effects of sleep inertia are more intense when being awoken during the window of circadian low. Yep. Well, would you look at that? Would you look at that? Just look at it. Just look at it. Point three. The family stated that the captain was suffering from an upset stomach and a sore throat, which is supported by the throat clearing and coughing heard on the CVR. Hotel staff in Mangalore confirmed that the captain had eaten very little during his stay between the 19th and the 21st. Drowsiness occurs when an individual suffers from a fever, which is likely to have occurred in this situation, though there is no direct evidence to prove the existence of a fever, since the family threw away any medication that was in his belongings because no one thought to not give them what might be evidence. Good times. Isn't there some sort of, like regulation that if you have a fever or something you can't fly it's not necessarily a regulation but it is part of the suggestion no the the checklist you go through before you fly the fit to fly checklist basically which i don't know it's called i'm safe and the first one is illness i don't know if that's specific to the faa i don't know what the dgca's regulations were at the time of this accident it's not really any of those things it's more of just like the unwritten rule it's not even really unwritten. I mean, we have the acronym. It's I'm safe. And that is circulated to every pilot everywhere in the world. Okay. Well. It is a standardized thing that the ICA and the IATA are both like, yeah, do that. I just feel like when you feel like. You shouldn't go to work. Like you don't want to go to work. I understand. Believe me, we're Americans. I totally understand going to work sick. Yep. I've and done tired. it before. I will do it again. You're because... doing it now. And tired. Well, I'm not like. So sick. I just am congested. That's a little anyway. Different. But my point being is, I we need to get past the stigma of I need money more than my like physical well being because sometimes it's just worth it to like stay home and rest. So sometimes you it's don't not just die. your physical well being. Well, requires- especially in this case. If you're going to fall asleep while you're trying to work. But most of the time, that also requires a cultural shift, which I'm not going to get into this, but it requires a cultural shift that allows you and promotes health and wellness and well-being by allowing you to have money and time off in order to do so. (laughs) 
Done. End of story. Continue. Damn. The investigator... So, that's all I have for causal anything. If anyone thought that none of that was not causal, I don't know. The investigators also went into some items that contributed to the severity of the crash, though did not cause the crash itself. With Mangalore being a tabletop runway with deep valleys and gorges on either side of it, it exacerbates the dangerous nature of an overrun. Mm -hmm. There should not be a downward slope in the overshoot area. Good idea. Great. It's a tabletop. (laughs) Like, I don't know what you're going to do about that, but don't have any? I mean, absolutely brilliant idea. Don't. sort of structure to... Before the downslope, they did have a runway and safety area, or RISA. But the RISA contained a localizer antenna and a, temp- and a temporary concrete platform for ILS calibration. And it's... And shrubbery and vegetation, none right. of which should be present in the RISA. Right. It needs to be maintained. And further, the man-made things that are put in that area, we'll get to this or in the recommendations, should probably not be so sturdy, like made out of concrete. If it's going to be a runway and safety area, it should probably be something that can fall apart when hit by an airplane. Otherwise known as frangible. Yep. And that's exactly the word they use. Investigators also discussed the lack of any implementation of a retardation system. Ideally, they should have an engineering material arresting system, or EMAS. EMAS! At the end of the runway, which basically is a surface that intentionally collapses when an aircraft rolls onto it, and it envelops the landing gear to very abruptly slow the aircraft. I argue that any tabletop airport should have EMAS. I was going to say, why <laughs> didn't they have EMAS? I they, feel like that would have fixed the problem. An answer to that, and it's in my next sentence. It is. So chill. <laughs> Investigators also acknowledge that EMAS is a potentially expensive safety feature, it especially is. for other countries around the world that don't necessarily invest in much in aviation. But there does exist something called Soft Ground Arrester, or SGA, which works in a similar manner, though it's usually something as simple as soft sand that the landing gear would then sink into. SGA is maintained at all Indian Air Force bases, so surely this is something that could have been implemented. If you look at Google Maps of Mangalore now, guess what there is? Soft sand! Look at that sand patch. With no concrete structures in it. Look at that. Or shrubbery. What do you know? Oh my god. Brilliant! It's like... They had an airplane run into something there or something. Yeah. So that's all I got, as if that wasn't enough. Yeah. (laughs) You mad? (laughs) I, okay. So here's like my final thoughts before we go into the normal stuff after the break, right? So part of the problem is having a lot of flights during the rhythm of circadian low. Like that's not a great idea. Window of circadian low. Yeah. Whatever. That's the cir- time of circadian yes. low, right? Yes. You really shouldn't enlist a few flights maybe, but it should not long international flights. It should not be something like like this, you know, that's just And to further that, it's not even just that. It's the fact that they scheduled them on this route after having already operated a route from Mangalore to Dubai that same evening and then operated the return during the middle of their yeah, window of circadian Yeah, that's low. just not safe. If this was the first flight of their day, they probably would have been a little bit better off. And the other problem, you know, like promoting health and wellness will always be a problem pretty much everywhere. Yes, unfortunately. Because, I mean, like I said, we're Americans, we're workaholics. And a lot of and the world promoted. has come to be as well. Yes. Well, and it's promoted that way, right? Like, That's there's one thing that Europe's actually gotten correct. Yes. Much of it, I not would, all I of it. I would agree. <laughs> but it's just... It's getting worse, though. It's just bad that we value you working yourself to death <laughs> yes. rather than 
oh, you're actually sick. You need to take time and like heal so you can come back and work like effectively because he would not have fallen asleep. Right. Potentially, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. Maybe he could have. But if he was not feeling well, if you've ever felt that way before, you want to go to bed. Yes. Because you just are like, I feel like death. Right. So, and my other problem, and I'm sure we'll get to this in the findings and recs, Mm -hmm. but the lack of CRM. Uh That is a big one. The huge lack of like, he like knew the captain was sleeping and he was just okay with that. That is a big one. You are correct. And it comes up in, yes, the recommendation. Yeah. Like, it, it's surprising to me that he just sat there and was like, he clearly was also tired, right? Because yeah. he was yawning and stuff, too. Oh, of course too. he was. But that's really dangerous. Like, what if something had happened and the captain was sleeping and the first officer didn't have anybody to help him out? You know what I mean? Yep. Well, something happened and the captain wasn't really awake enough. And <laughs> turns out the first officer wasn't either. It is also worth noting, I'm sure several of you had this potential question of why didn't the first officer conduct the go around himself when he was ignored? So did the investigators. That is also a big CRM point. And I believe that the main driving factor behind that was the mandate by Air India Express that only the pilot in command can perform a landing or takeoff at At Mangalore. This specific airport. Right. Yep. That is exactly right. I don't know. But they were... They weren't landed yet. Like at that point, I'm like, it's a gray area where it's like, you know yes. what? We haven't landed yet. We're way too high. We need to do a go around. But that's part of why I think that the policy of only allowing the pilot in command to perform landings and takeoffs at critical airports. Yes. That's not the word they used. I can't remember. Airfield. I don't know. Airfield. Yep. I think that that entire policy is very anti-CRM. Yes. Because it's directly it contradicting is. CRM. The ability of the secondary flight crew member to not be seen as secondary. Well, to it, be to have an equal share of say. And then right. it always ensures that, that the first officer will never have experience landing. actually landing the aircraft at said airport. Right. Which isn't necessarily particularly that difficult other than it's got a cliff on either end. Otherwise, the landing is pretty much the same. You touch down on the runway and you slow down, but you have to touch down at the right place. Okay, great. Not 5,000 feet down the runway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah, that's a whole thing. All right. Well, let, we'll do break stuff and then we'll do the normal stuff. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're back. Hello. All right. Get to do the normal things. Kind of. We're going to do the findings. There are quite a few findings. I'm not doing all of them, but I am doing a handful. They found that the crew had not been subjected to a pre-flight medical examination. However, based on statements by the witnesses who met slash saw the crew prior to the flights, as they came in on the previous flight, which was flight 811 from Mangalore, and before they took 812 from Dubai to Mangalore, there was no evidence indicating any adverse medical or behavioral condition with the flight crew. I thought this one was really interesting because, and we'll bring this up in the recommendations, but this is an interesting thing with Air India Express and Indian regulation that we don't 
do or talk about or have here. And where it definitely seems like sometimes Indian regulation and aviation may be lacking in some areas. In some ways, I think they're living in a whole other world. Like they are doing things that maybe we should all do. Maybe it's not such a bad thing because you might have noticed I said they were not subjected to a pre-flight medical examination. Bring this up. Is everyone? I'll bring this up in the recommendations, but they recommend that they should go through a pre-flight medical examination before every single flight, which requires there to be basically... A lot of medical staff. Yeah, basically medical staff at every single one of these airports ready to go all the time. And I don't see... A negative to that, per se. Other than wages, time, effort. Staff. Yep. Sure. What happens if you don't have the staff? Right. Which is actually the case here, because normally it is company procedure to do so, which means that Air India Express already does this. Good for you. Crazy, right? They actually employ their own medical staff everywhere they go. That's actually pretty incredible. Yeah. And they didn't have the staff on hand at Dubai at the time. So that was kind of the whole thing. They were like, well, they maybe would have caught some of this if they had had the medical examination. And that's a good point. (laughs) I'm impressed. I would even (laughs) caution to say that they would have caught this. Yeah. If the captain really was feeling that crappy, you have to know he didn't look well. Right. Right. On top of that, like if there would have been some signs of fatigue that I'm sure they would have been trained for. To catch. To be like, you know what? This might not be a good idea. Right. They would have been able to catch a fever if he did indeed have one. Right. Not that that will ever be able to prove one way or the other. Right. So while there's a lot of logistical problems with doing such a thing, I see the merit to it because be it that pilots have such a critical role in aviation. And are so prone to flying when they're sick. Right. This is like a brilliant thing. And obviously, like as a pilot, you don't want to be like, oh, I'm sick, but I'm going into work, and then you get turned away and you lose money, right? Like, of course you don't want those kinds of things. But at the same time, safety. (laughs) Just saying. They found that as per the flight schedule, flight crew had sufficient off-duty time prior to the flight to avail adequate rest. Okay, fine. But we were also operating during the window of circadian low, and... Which you can't get around. You just can't. You can't. And they had just operated a whole nother long flight from Mangalore to Dubai. And we're just planning to return. (laughs) They found that as indicated by the digital flight data recorder, the aircraft was fully serviceable throughout its flight till the actual crash. Nothing was wrong with the airplane. Right. As per the CVR, the crew had also not reported any unserviceability. There was literally nothing wrong with the airplane. And the only reason that I left that one in is to prove it was all of the proof that they had to say nothing was wrong with the airplane at all that caused this accident. It was entirely human error. Because it was entirely human error. Right. Now, that's not to say it wasn't a culmination of things still, because it was, but it was ultimately still human error. Found that as indicated by the CVR, the captain was asleep with sounds of intermittent snoring and deep breathing heard for the first one hour and 40 minutes of the recording, out of the total of two hours and five minutes. This had possibly led to sleep inertia and impaired judgment. No, really. They found that the descent from flight level 370 would have normally been done by about 130 DME from the airport. However, it was delayed since the area radar was unserviceable and the controller had to resort to procedural control for ensuring safe separation with other air traffic. So that's the whole thing of where, yes, normally from 37,000 feet, they would have to start their descent 130 miles from the airport. Yeah. In order to descend at a normal rate of descent and get on the approach at a good altitude. That couldn't happen because of the procedures the air traffic controller had to do. This is one of those, it's a culmination of things. 
because now they're behind the ball. Right. And that's kind of. But it still could have been done safely. The whole thing. Right. So that's why the next point. They found that the crew had failed to plan the descent profile so as to arrive at correct altitude for positioning into ILS approach. The first officer had said on the intercom to the captain, radar not available, but I do not know what to do. End quote. This indicated that he was possibly not aware of the procedure in case the radar was not available, and in such a scenario, how to plan a descent and approach if not permitted by the area controller to descend at the desired distance on DME. So all of that to say they had no clue how to manage their descent rate since they had to descend so much faster than normal. Usually just means you have to slow down a lot, <laughs> by the way. They found that in case of fatigue and flying in the period of window of circadian low, or for any other reason, it would have been better to program descent with use of the autopilot to arrive correctly for the ILS approach. Using the autopilot to do the whole descent, everything. Instead, they did a lot of manual processes to this. But no matter, they had to deal with this. Make it work. And they didn't. Basically, the gist of that is when they were instructed to descend to 7,000 feet, they manually put that into the autopilot and put in a regular descent rate. The correct way to actually do this in the case of this crash, <laughs> this accident, mm -hmm. would have been to program into the flight computer the ILS approach and the DME arc, which includes altitudes at certain points, and then you select the vertical navigation feature of the autopilot, which will then descend at whatever rate is necessary to get you down to that point. What a concept. Right. Now, that also requires you to do speed management, and like I said, slow way down. They found that the first officer had correctly identified that the aircraft was in an unstabilized approach. He had also asked the captain to go around three times. They didn't do so. They found that at about 1.7 DME on final approach, having realized that the aircraft was too high, the captain had intentionally disconnected the autopilot and increased the rate of descent to reestablish on visual profile for runway 24, which, by the way, he did at 4,000 feet per minute. Oh, Jesus. And never got down to the altitude required to actually make. Because that's not how this works. Right. And then he was going way too fast. <laughs> and then you have the issue of like when they eventually were able to get to the runway, like the flaps weren't where they were supposed to be. Because they were going too fast. And then, you know, at that all... point it triggered that he should have done a go around and then it was too late. And then he right. tried to fix it like, no. Right. Both of these actions by the captain indicate that he was actively engaged in controlling the aircraft. This confirmed that the captain was not incapacitated in any manner. The reason that came up, we didn't talk about this at any point in time. The number one thing that happened immediately after this accident is the media went wild saying that the captain was completely incapacitated for this landing. And that was the whole reason that he was the accident happened. He wasn't. And this was all their justification as to why. They were like, no, he was coherent. He was doing things. He was actively controlling the aircraft. And he was trying to do the approach, but he was having bad judgment. He wasn't obviously in any way incapacitated. He just made a bad decision. Simple as that. Last finding I'm doing. They found that the captain had failed to cross-check the altitude and corresponding distance on approach. In spite of the number of warnings to the contrary, the captain had persisted with the approach and landing. He had not only touched down late, but also did not apply the brakes appropriately. Moreover, the pilot and commander, the captain, had attempted to, quote, go around, end quote, after having selected the thrust reversers, which is categorically prohibited in the standard operating procedures. Because it doesn't work. Right. The airplane doesn't work that way. If you have to... Right, it's a bad thing. ...do a go-around after you're already on the ground with thrust reversers, it's too late. Right. It's too much work for the like, aircraft to have to go around. if you had touched down and went, nope! 
I could understand that, but the thrust reverse is deployed. That is, it's too much drag. It's slowed down too much. Getting the airplane back going again is going to take too long. It's too dangerous of a situation to put yourself in. This is the one time where you cannot always go around. <laughs> you that, can when you don't deploy the thrust reversers. That and bingo fuel. Those are the two instances where you cannot go around. You are what? landing. What was the other one? Bingo fuel. Bingo fuel is the point at which fuel cannot carry you back to the airport again a second time. Ah, that's fair. <laughs> Bingo fuel is also the point at which you have to make a decision. Say you're... You're fuzzucked. Right. Say you're in a situation where you have to decide, like you're in a pattern and you have to decide about going to an alternate or landing at the airport of intention, the arrival airport. Bingo fuel is the point where you have to make that decision because you will be too low on fuel to make it to one of those two. So makes sense. Bingo fuel is basically literally saying that is the end of my fuel reserve. Anything beyond this point, I will not make it no matter the situation. So those are the instances where you cannot go around. That's all I'm doing for the findings. Okay. Cause of the accident. That is what it says. Direct causes. The court of inquiry determines that the cause of this accident was captain's failure to discontinue the unstabilized approach and his persistence in continuing with the landing. Despite three calls from the first officer to go around and a number of warnings from the Enhanced ground proximity warning system. Great. Contributing factors to the accident. In spite of availability of adequate rest period prior to the flight, the captain was in prolonged sleep during the flight, which could have led to sleep inertia. As a result of relatively short period of time between his awakening and the approach, it possibly led to impaired judgment. This aspect might have got accentuated while flying the window of circadian low. Might have got accentuated. Might have gotten. Might have accentuated. (laughs) Might have been accentuated. Right. Sorry, I'm nitpicking. English is hard. In the absence of Mangalore area control radar, due to unserviceability, the aircraft was given descent at a shorter distance on DME as compared to the normal. However, the flight crew did not plan the descent profile properly, resulting in remaining high on approach. Probably in view of ambiguity and various instructions empowering the co-pilot to initiate a go-around, the first officer gave repeated calls to this effect, but did not take over the controls to actually discontinue the ill-fated approach. Which is bad ZRM. So there you go. There you go. go. All right. Let's do some recommendations. Oh my God. There Holy were a lot of these. Holy crap. When I said there were a lot of these, there were a lot. And actually there's not. <laughs> Allow me to explain. <laughs> there's a lot. Actually. <laughs> actually, there's not. So you were just looking at this. If you actually look at it closely, the headings are the recommendation. The paragraph is the explanation. All the paragraphs below each one of those headings is the explanation. Oh. So there's actually not very many recommendations. They are just chunked so bad. So I'm not reading them. (laughs) I am explaining what I feel is important from these. So that said, the recommendations. The heading for this one was Air India Express should operate as a separate entity. What this actually means is really interesting. Air India Express was a wholly separate company but was somehow still operating with a lot of the same executives and management. Oh, I don't like that. As Air India. Mm. And on top of that, like the outside entities involved with Air India Express were all being run by people who didn't know anything about the 737. (laughs) Shocked, I say. And all of these things to say that while they're following... All of these different things, and basically they're taking a lot of things from Air India, but they're also neglecting Air India Express completely because it doesn't have its own set of personnel to take care of it. Yeah. Even though it is its 
own company completely. It's getting backburnered. Exactly. A tale as old as time. Yes. <laughs> and so the whole explanation is here. They believe that it should be completely independent. It should operate independently, and it should have all of its own personnel. It should have nothing to do with Air India other than the name. Did they take that under advisement? To some extent, yes. We'll talk about in a little bit why this didn't necessarily work. There's a lot of things here that didn't necessarily work. The next heading was a need for calibrated growth at Air India Express. The reason for that being is they had grown rapidly between 2005 and 2010, getting a lot of airplanes, a lot of crews, and a lot of routes. We've seen this many times. I was going to say, <laughs> what does that sound like? Yeah, a lot of accidents we have talked about. Air India Express still exists, for those that don't know. It is still a very busy airline in India. It is still operating entirely 737-800s. This is okay, except that much like many other instances, when you grow this rapidly, especially with a team of people who just aren't paying attention, it does bad things. Things fall through the cracks. Things fall way through the cracks. There are so many things that they just weren't prepared for. One of the recommendations was to do computerized networks for all activities. This is their way of saying just... Stop operating on paper. Come to the digital age. It's 2010! Right. Even at the time, it was like, come on, you can do all of this by... Freaking it's not computers. like we're in the even the early 2000s. Right. You can do all of this stuff by computer now, and there's no reason not to. And the reason they say that is because there were so many things that just bogged the airline down. So many processes that prevented them from operating efficiently, where the other airlines could just go the, way that, go the way that Air India Express was trying to. They recommended, recommended the need for internal safety auditing which only seems like the most important thing. Yes. Like, seriously, every airline and every entity involved with the airlines on Earth has some form of this. Safety audits. That is just a thing. I literally do this in big part for a living, so I know how this goes and what this means. We'll bring this up in a minute, but they have more to expand on that, i.e. safety management systems. Where have we heard that before? Right. Everywhere. Everything. Yep. Period. It made me really happy one time we went out to dinner with uh, Nick's boss, and they were talking about safety management systems, and I was able to jump in the conversation. Yes. And his boss is like, how often is it that an employee's girlfriend can j happily jump into a conversation about safety management systems? Right. I'm like, hi. Crazy, right? When you have a podcast that focuses mostly on aviation safety. Yep. Concept. One of their recommendations to a point is just... Listed as training. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Damn. Correct. There were a lot of paragraphs under this, some of which were short, but the whole point of that was actually quite a few things. One, the proper training of pilots, period, and such. I mean, the next point was simulator training, and I'm not even doing that one, but that's part of it. CRM, which is also its own point, and I do get to. But primarily actually training when it comes to knowing when you're fatigued and medical practices and, you know, good medical practices in aviation and as well as the whole first officer thing at the airport and not being able to do any of the landings. And yeah, that's get that to the first problem. to the captain. And that's that's a whole thing. So as well as foreign pilots, this was a topic because of the captain, of course, who was. Uh huh. A not from India. Pilot? We'll talk more about this in just a second because this is really interesting. But actually, he... You keep saying we're going to talk about this in a second. You I know. know. That's because there's recommendations for all of these things. Okay. There really are. 
there's a really strange way in which he operated. While he was based out of Mangalore, he wasn't really. His family was all in Serbia. Right. And that's where he lived. CRM! CRM, 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 CRM. CRM. They brought this up for a number of reasons, primarily because the first officer didn't do the The thing. thing? The thing he was supposed to do. Of actually going around when he says go around. Rather than questioning, he should have just done. All right, employment of foreign pilots. We'll get into this now. The whole reason they brought that up, and I will read the first sentence of one of these paragraphs because it definitely sums this up well. I'll actually read it. I think it's a couple sentences. Air India Express could reconsider terms and conditions of employment of foreign pilots, encouraging foreign pilots to stay in India with families rather than the current practice of serving six weeks followed by a two-week vacation abroad is considered most desirable. So that means that this pilot was literally living in Serbia, was a Serbian national, and yet would come to India, fly to India, where for six weeks he would be a pilot. So this and was then actually go back. This was mentioned earlier in the report, and I mm-hmm. discredit it because I didn't think it was applicable. Mm-hmm. In one of the potential reasons for fatigue, they listed that the captain had recently gone on an extended trip, a vacation, i.e., being home, and that he may have been experiencing jet lag. The reason that I discredited that yes, is because he got back more than a week before the accident. Right. Flight. You still had plenty of time to adjust to the time. Yeah. I agree with that. Although flying this strange schedule probably doesn't help. No, but I feel, I think it was eight days. Right. Yeah. Time change and jet lag are not an excuse here, to no. be honest. When you're based out of Mangalore and that's where you've been for eight days already. But the timing of the flight. Yes. Big factor. Oh, yeah. Way more of a factor than jet lag would have been. Right. So that's a whole thing. And I agree with that. I mean, it's very, it's not great to go bringing pilots from other countries and expecting them to like operate your airplanes for a little while and then send them back. It just, it's a logistical nightmare. It doesn't make a lot of sense anyway. And it can complicate a lot of things between language barriers and differences in regulations and pay. And there's just so many reasons. It just doesn't make sense. I know that you need to get crews, but You should find a way to do that locally. Pre-flight medical checks. Yes, I bring this up again. Oh, boy. Discuss this just in brief again since we've already talked about it. But that's the whole thing. They recommend doing this everywhere. Literally, the first one says, Air India Express should ensure 100% pre-flight medical check of all flight crew prior to commencement of a flight slash series of flights. So no matter what, they should be doing this for their day at the very least. If not literally every single flight. I think in theory, it sounds like a great idea. Mm -hmm. Implementation sounds like an absolute nightmare. Logistically, absolutely. But if you plan this correctly, depending on the network structure of an airline, say hub and spoke, you could have medical staff in all of the hubs. Not Southwest. Right. You can have medical staff in all of the hubs and at the beginning of each one of the crew days, or at least have them in the crew base, of course, since that's where the crew is going to start their day. But then like, what if they get stuck somewhere? Right. On one of the spokes. Right. That's a different thing. Then you kind of have to rely on it being okay, obviously, from the day before. So maybe they should be permitted for up to 36 hours or something like that after medical check. That would be a reasonable regulation in my eyes. But still, that's a whole thing. Don't come for us in the comments, please. No. I understand why logistically this is a very difficult thing to do. But obviously, some airlines are already kind of doing this in some places of the world. And I really do see how this could be a benefit. It's to avoid a lot of the safety issues, but also it's a really good way to track data and metrics and be able to find better ways to schedule pilots and schedule staff and also make sure you always have the right amount of reserve, right? So that's something that to me is just, yeah, it seems like a good idea. <laughs> yeah. 
It does. It just seems like a good idea to me. Aviation medicine and specialists. The reason that I brought this one up specifically is because what they're talking about is the airline should specifically hire basically a head of aviation medicine that is a full-time employee to regulate these things. Where are you seeing this? Keep track of this. What section are you reading? 4.1.13. Okay. Because I was on Mm 4.3.2. It's a very different thing, but they use the same term. It is, yeah. No, this one's talking about, it literally says, the airline should consider employing a full-time specialist in aviation medicine. So the whole idea is literally to have somebody who, that's entirely their specialty, and they are there to regulate and help organize this for the airline. I don't think that's a bad idea. I think a lot of airlines probably already do such practice or have somebody who usually does that for them. Now, in talking about the airport, they recommend avoidance of downward slope in the overshoot area, particularly on tabletop runways. Don't have a big giant drop off. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Uh, Mother Nature did that. Right. Most of the time, this is a very difficult thing to avoid. I dare you to recommend that to Telluride. Right, exactly. This isn't something you can usually just fix. So, the reality is that one seemed like a really silly recommendation to me, but their next couple made a lot more sense <laughs> and are the things that they could actually implement and fix. The need for frangible structures on the overshoot areas, things that fall apart when an airplane hits them rather than destroy the aircraft. Like concrete. Like concrete. Maintenance of RISA, runway and safety area, making sure that it's maintained so that it actually does its job rather than destroy the aircraft. EMAS and soft ground arrest barriers, which is the real solution to this problem, right? Not trying to fix the problem with the airport being a tabletop. That's, that's not just a thing. A that's just a thing that's going to happen. Sorry. And, right. And to be honest, actually, tabletop airports generally, I'm not going to say they're safer because they're not necessarily. Although if you add EMAS or any of these barriers, yes. But they promote a higher awareness. Yeah. Well, and they're a lot less likely to actually cause problems around the airport area for obstacles because they're up high. They are the highest thing in the area. So... It also makes it easier to spot them visibly, though it can often be that weather is more prominent in these areas. Actually, the most prominent of all of the tabletop airports that I can think of, SeaTac. Oh, really? SeaTac is entirely a tabletop airport. Oh. The whole thing sits above the terrain around it. Hmm. I never knew that. Yep, it's up high. I don't often just look at topographical maps. Nope. I get that. But it's true. It is. So that's the whole thing. And of course, EMAS and... Soft ground arrest barriers are the real solution to these tabletop airports. Like something just that just keeps the airplane from going off the cliff. <laughs> just hug the landing gear. Yeah. It just gently grabs violently. <laughs> violently. <laughs> Violent hugs. It grabs it gently enough that it... Doesn't destroy it. Right. But violently enough that it will stop it. And that is important. Three more here. No, four more. Sorry. Insulation of distance to go markers. They weren't doing that at most Indian airports yet, which we've talked about these before, and they are a good idea. Yeah, they are. They tell you how far you have to go by the thousands. They usually list like 5,000, 4,000, 3,000, yeah, 2,000 as you go down the runway. Yeah. Just so you have an idea of how far you are from the end of the runway, because distance perception, both in the dark and even during the day. Especially on a tabletop. Right. Can be very difficult to tell how far away you are from the end of it. Having distance to go markers can help you make decisions like mm, go around. When you float, 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 float forever, and then suddenly you touch down, but you have no idea how far you are from the end of the runway, yeah, it's a lot more difficult to make a decision of when to go around. But if you float, 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 touch down, and it says two, (laughs) you should have gone around. (laughs) Just just maybe a little. So, 
that's a whole thing. Location of the air traffic control tower at Mangalore. This changed. Oh. This changed vastly. As a matter of fact, on Google, it says new air traffic control center. (laughs) (laughs) That's how much this was important. The old tower was at the old terminal, which is still spottable on the map, by the way. It's on the very north side, and I can understand why they could not see where the airplane was when it ran off the runway, because it was on top of this little building right here. This was the tower. Mm -hmm. Here's the old runway. This is the new runway. It goes this way. All of this was in the way, basically, as they ran off the runway all the way over here. How do you expect them to see that from all the freaking way up here? So where where is it now? So right now, it's right here in the middle. And it's a much sense. taller tower that actually overlooks both runways. Wow. Which one of them isn't a runway anymore. What so. a concept. Right. You'd be able to see everything. What? Yep. And it says, new air traffic service building. <laughs> right there on the map. So. On top of that, they actually moved the terminal entirely at the time. They had the newer runway, the much longer runway, but they hadn't moved the terminal yet. Now it's much larger, and it's all the way down at the end where the airplane actually ran off, (laughs) rather than the complete opposite. Which, by the way, if you are looking at this on Google Maps, it did run off that super long runway. It did. Yes, it did. Didn't have anything to do with the short one. I say super long. We have longer. Yep. Just kidding. I might have actually a handful more. Okay. You're such a liar. I'm sorry. I Hurry up. God. Uh, I want to refill my wine. This is how many they had. It's just insane. Approach radar and area radar repeaters in the air traffic control tower. Rather than having one source of radar control that could possibly go wrong, and then they have to resort to procedures that require you to descend at 80 DME rather than 130. Backups. Backups. Sounds like a good idea, right? So that's a whole thing. Suitability of... RFF vehicles for the type of terrain. That is your... This sounds like Miranda Zone. <laughs> well, yeah. The emergency response vehicles. They're talking about the fact that they couldn't really get to the airplane because, I don't know, it was in a gorge. And they didn't have vehicles that were really equipped to get there. Plus, the roads were really narrow in the area and the vehicles were wider than it. <laughs> yep, that'll do it. So, their whole recommendation here is actually to say that if you're going to have vehicles at the airport... It should be able to service anything in a certain radius of the airport, too, because it's probably going to have to in the event of an emergency like this. So making sure you have equipment that can actually handle the terrain, the area, all that. We recommend a revision of duty time limitations for other staff related to aviation. So this is not just talking about pilots cabin crew. This is talking about, and this is a really hot topic in aviation right now. And this is talking about things like ground crew, too. So, like, ramp staff and... Uh, they can make a ton of mistakes, too, as gate, it turns out. You're right, and gate staff and such. Having duty time limitations because they can make critical mistakes that are really important and can really risk the safety of aircraft. And they should also be on duty time limitations. Maintenance staff and ramp staff and all those things, they should also be regulated to some extent. I know that people... Just don't necessarily want that because they need the hours and people need, you know, the companies need the staff and it's hard to get enough staff to cover multiple shifts. But you got to do it because there's safety involved. Implementation of fatigue risk management systems. That seems really important, right? This went hand in hand with the safety management system things where you should just do that. (laughs) Have that and do that and prevent issues from happening, which we've talked about plenty of times. But fatigue risk management systems is more of a holistic approach to training and understanding for flight crews and those around flight crews on how to understand when you're fatigued and when you should not fly. Because sometimes, even though you do have adequate rest time, if you are, if you feel fatigued and nothing else says that you're fatigued, you still shouldn't fly. Yeah. Right. 
So the next one is kind of the hot topic about this accident. Regulations on controlled rest in seat. And yes, some countries and some airlines allow this. Where you are not all of them. Don't no, you dear send me those educational God, no. videos on Facebook and YouTube. Right. Dear God, no. And it is still not a good idea for a lot of reasons. If you are going to rest, you should be replaced, right? That's why on a lot of wide body aircraft and large aircraft, they have a crew rest area that's large enough where you can literally have a bed and lay down. It's usually somewhere in the roof or underneath where the crew can literally just go and sleep. But they will be replaced by an awake crew member to monitor and take care of the aircraft. This is a very different thing. So on the 737, I understand that it is not possible because there's no crew rest, but you could still be doing crew swaps and reserve a seat for an extra crew member. This isn't necessarily a long enough route to do that, so I get that, but on extended routes where you're not going to be doing much during a good chunk of the flight, there should still be very controlled manners and regulated manners about if you need to rest, if it's an absolute must, there should be a very controlled way that that is taken care of. Your first officer must be awake and monitoring, and you must time that rest time, basically. With the autopilot. Right. Obviously with the autopilot engaged and all those things. So, and you must time it. Like, it must be no more than, say, 30 minutes. So that you don't reach deep sleep. Right. So that you don't deal with sleep inertia. Exactly. So, those kinds of things. That's basically what they're talking about. And the final recommendation, and the one that definitely also changed, setting up of Indian Civil Aviation Safety Board. Yep, that going, happened. Going from a court of inquiry to an actual safety board for these things. Why that's important is because, and I pulled this up while you were doing your portion, after this accident, Air India Express had... Alone. A subsequent three <laughs> runway overruns, or runway incidents. Major ones. I can say that I have seen other minor incidents from Mariandi Express since this as well, but those are the listed ones. Those are the three other major ones since this accident. But I know that they've had other little incidents here and there, usually like sliding off of a taxiway, sliding off the end of a runway slightly, like just enough where it's like inconvenient, they can pull it out of the dirt. So just... To put it out there, since I hadn't said the name of it, the Aircraft Accident Investigation Bureau was established on July 5th, 2012. Yep. So two years after the accident, yep. basically. Yep. It is a division of the Ministry of Civil Aviation of the Government of India. Yep. Which, in the way, the NTSB is basically part of the FAA, though they're pretty separated. I was kind of hoping that their Wikipedia page would tell me significant ones that they've experienced recently, but please yep. hold. Regardless, the whole thing is Air India Express has an unfortunate recurrence with this problem still for varying reasons. The last one being in August of 2020 when one of their 737s ran off a wet runway Ah. in heavy rain. I remember when that one happened and I remember sending it to you guys and saying, yeah, this is unfortunately normal. Like just this is not the only one because it's not just Air India Express. It's a lot of Indian carriers. This is a very common problem in India where they just run off runways. It seems to be like they don't really care. Like Which one did you just say? It's on 7th of August, 2020, Air yep, India okay. Express Flight 1344. Yeah, well, that one did break up the airplane, though. It was pretty nasty. Dang it. But there were two others as well that also had to do with runways. One of them went through localizer antennas on takeoff, and the other one skidded off on landing, and that one was pretty minor. So, I mean, it just, it's unfortunate, but this is a relatively regular problem <laughs> for Air India Express and Indian carriers in general. 
Runways are also known to be very poorly maintained in India, though over time they've been getting better because they've been replacing a lot of them. But for a period of time, Air India themselves operated these dual-axle main landing gear A320s that were unique because the runways were so rough that they were landing on. The single axle that they had on the two main landing gear wasn't enough, so they put two on each. They made it look like a 757. Okay. Very strange. They, I just want a list of accidents in India since 2012. Good luck with that. Anyways, that's it. I don't remember the flight number. Air India Express 812. 812. This flight still operates from Dubai to Mangalore. Oh. In the middle of the night as Air India Express 814. Maybe don't do that. They still do as Air India Express 814. So they just changed the number by two. <laughs> At least they don't use the original number. Yep. And yeah, it a leaves. Superstition. At, right. And it leaves at 1215 a.m. and arrives at like five. So. Gross. Yep. Gross. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. Here's your slightly long episode. You're welcome. Kind of. Thank you to our patrons. We highly appreciate you. Yes. If you would like to be a patron, go check us out on Patreon. Yes. One of us. One One of us. us. (laughs) Check out the merch page. If you can't do either of those things, you can always, you know, give us a rating. Yuppers? Anywhere, really. Anywhere. (laughs) It helps. Or tell a family member or a friend or something. Or subscribe. Or subscribe. Just subscribe. Follow. Follow. Whatever. I found a list. It's a really long list. Yes, it is. We can talk about it in the post episode. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.